You're listening to Mystery of 2012, a Sounds True podcast. Episode number two, The Mystery of 2012, Peter Russell on Widespread Awakening. This week I speak with Peter Russell, prolific author and revolutionary futurist. We discuss the current planetary crisis and the seeds of potential contained within it. According to Russell, our current crisis could lead to the widespread awakening of humanity, or it could lead to a global breakdown. Listen in to find out what we can do to shift the tide toward awakening during this period of accelerating change. In your work, Peter, I know you talk about 2012 symbolically more than literally. And first of all, I'm wondering what do you think the difference is in people who are relating to 2012 in a literal way versus a symbolic way? Yes. I mean, I would say what's common to both of them is seeing that we're moving through into a time of crisis and also transformation and renewal. The people who see it in a literal way think something is going to happen on that particular year, and some even think it's going to happen on the particular date of December the 21st, which is the day the calendar runs out. I don't see anything in the prophecies that say that year is important. The ending of the Mayan calendar is important as a time of shift, but it's like the ending can be considered as, you know, a day or a year or a period of years. I see it much more as really symbolizing this period of time that we're passing through. And so for me, 2012 is like, it's a symbolic center, or even perhaps the beginning of a time of major change. And that means that it's not something that's coming. It's something we're already in, and it's been growing for a long time. And there's been many aspects of the crisis. We've had oil crisis before. We're beginning to see the crisis of climate change. Right now, we're seeing an economic crisis. We're all aware of the environmental crisis. So we're already moving into it. And already, the signs of people beginning to shift, signs of that transformation and renewal beginning to happen. So for me, seeing it as a period of history means we're more active, we're more proactive in it because there's things we can be doing right now. Our lives are about this period as opposed to waiting for this time to happen, to come upon us. My feeling is I don't think the year 2012 will be any different from the years around it. Not that it's going to be fine, but it's not going to be significantly that different. That's just my feeling. Do you think there are any dangers or challenges in people taking it literally? Yes, I think several things. Firstly, we've been through this before. There have been many prophecies about things are going to happen, the end of the world is going to come at a certain date and it doesn't happen and we just continue moving on. I mean, one thing I discovered the other day, I looked up the, the actual time of the solstice on December the 21st and would you believe it's 11, 11 in the morning. And I think this is going to give a lot of people, when they realize this, all the people who love 11.11 and the mystique around that are going to be actually focused on that moment. Uh, but I don't think anything major is going to happen. And so I think there's two dangers. One is we almost allow ourselves to become not so much victims, but passive participants in the process, almost like waiting for something to happen. 
rather than seeing in a broader perspective these are times in which we're actively engaged in change. I think most people, Peter, know you for your work with the global brain. I'm wondering if you can summarize for us what you discovered in that book and how that relates to 2012. Yes, that book I wrote when well, it was published in 82 and I was really writing it in the late 70s and it came from the confluence of several things in my own thinking. I'd had a background in computer science and my early work in computer science was on the very first networking of computers and I could see that was where the future of computers were going. This was before the internet actually existed. And at the same time, Jim Lovelock had just come out with his theory of Gaia. And the question I started asking is, well, what is humanity doing here on the planet? If every part of the planet is functioning as an organ in this much larger organism, which he called Gaia, the whole biosystem of the Earth, and like you can consider the rainforests a bit like the lungs of the planet and the oceans are like the circulatory system. I started asking, well, what are human beings doing here? And clearly what human beings are particularly good at is processing information. And that led me to see that where the growing connectivity of computers would be taking us would be towards the development of a planetary nervous system. We'd be linking our minds together through the Internet, as it's now called. Though like many, many people back then, 25 years ago, none of us saw how it would really look. We were just sensing the potentials of what could happen. And also at that time, I'd become interested in Théard de Chardin, the French Jesuit priest who was also a paleontologist, who was interested in the origins of humanity, but also where humanity was going. And he saw the future evolution was moving towards a point of global spiritual awakening, which he called the Omega Point, but which he put off as years in the future. And I saw that maybe the internet was bringing this into our own lifetimes, that we could actually be not just coming together in a global brain, but through that coming together, beginning to foster the awakening of humanity. So those were the, the three impulses that really were behind the writing of the book. And even at that time, I was seeing that acceleration was moving faster and faster and faster and taking us towards a point where there may be change would be so fast we couldn't imagine it now. And that's one thing that some people see as 2012 is very rapid change. But also the increasing rate of change was producing a crisis on the planet. And it was through crisis that we'd be forced to start making these changes. And if we just leave people alone happily in, in their comfort zone, we don't make changes. But it's when we're pushed to the edge that we begin to make changes. And I saw that throughout evolution, crisis had played a critical role. It was when things got stretched that major shifts happened. And so I was seeing that it was going to take crisis to push us through into a different way of being. And I think that's 
really what 2012 represents in many people's thinking and in many other prophecies. By the way, it's not just 2012. We see it in things like the Hopi prophecy, many prophecies, this idea that we are moving into a time of breakdown and through that is going to come an awakening. I'd like to talk more about the omega point. Is, mm -hmm. is the idea here that at the omega point, all of humanity will be will be what? All, however many gajillion of us, will be spiritually awake, quote unquote. And what would that mean? All of us, everyone, all at the same time? Is that the? Is that the I mean, I'm sounds, not sure. If we look at Teilhard de Chardin's vision, he was a Christian, and he talked about it as sort of the birth of the Christosphere, where we would all be all be in Christ consciousness, which I think is probably a Christian way of saying awakened, enlightened, liberated, in touch with who we really are. Whether that needs to happen to everybody on the planet, I don't know. My feeling is if a significant proportion of the population, maybe a majority, but definitely a significant portion of the population let go of the old ways, the old self-centered, limited thinking that sort of puts me first and grabbing what I can in order to satisfy my own needs. If a significant proportion of the population can let go of that, we would move into a wise, awakened society. It would be a very different way of operating the world. So I'm not sure it has to happen to everybody, and it would be hard to see how that could be the case. Seems a little mythic to think that. Yeah, yeah. But I do think that awakening can happen very fast. There have been so many cases of individuals, whether it's, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus or Eckhart Tolle even, or other people we know who, when something happens in their life and there's that letting go and there's a release and we start touching into our truth. And that because it can happen to individuals like that, there's just this release and there's a moment of transformation. I see it's possible that we could start having a mass shift like that, a letting go. I don't know what would trigger it. It might be some sort of crisis or something media. If we had somebody who was really able to shine that wisdom through the media in a way it could catalyze that awakening so i think that's the other side it could be a lot easier for this to happen than we think now you, you mentioned that it might not be you know every single person in the population but maybe mm -hmm. maybe a simple majority or something i've heard some it people it could be yes yeah i've heard some people say that you know if it was only 1% of the world population you know these are radically different numbers yeah and i mean what kinds of numbers or studies can we look to here? Are there any mathematics of the omega point? The the one percent thing came basically I think from Maharishi, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the person who brought TM to the West. And he used to talk about one percent of the population. And I'm not sure quite where he got that figure from. And then a bit later he talked about the square root of one percent, which was based upon some physics in terms of coherence with laser light that when you get all the photons in a light beam are lined up as in a laser then the way at which the power of the laser increases is to do with the square of the number of elements in it and so he was seeing that a very small number of people 
could actually have a very dominating effect on the population. He was using that analogy with physics. So there is some mathematics there. Whether it applies to human consciousness, who knows? But that's where that idea came from. And I know many people have said similar things over time. I think it's certainly true that people who are more, like to use the word awake, do have an effect upon others. They have a calming influence when you're around them. Maybe their wisdom rubs off on others. So I think the principle that the more awake people are, the more that awakens or has an effect upon the rest of society. I think that principle is true. I don't know about the numbers, to be honest. Let's wait and see. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned that Tilhard de Chardin talked about the omega point being far out in time, meaning hundreds of mm-hmm. years, potentially thousands of years, whatever. But that through the power of the World Wide Web, perhaps this is coming closer into time. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that in terms of, I mean, do you believe that human society may enter something like an omega point in the nearer than further future? What kind of time horizon are you looking at? I'm looking at something like 50 years. I say that because I think if we don't do something like in 50 years, we probably will have extinguished ourselves or made things very, very difficult. I think we we've got to come through this crisis with a lot more wisdom and sanity than we're putting into it. And just from the rate at which things are going faster and faster and faster, I think that sort of, let's call it widespread awakening rather than truly collective awakening, but widespread awakening is possible in that sort of time frame. And Teo de Chardin, when he was initially thinking about this when he was thinking thousands of years in the future wasn't thinking in terms of accelerating time he was thinking about linear time and he himself said that television would bring this forward and then when he saw computers coming along he saw that that would hasten it he didn't see the internet but I think what we're seeing now is with the internet we're moving into a period of collective thinking which say 25 years ago none of us who are looking at this, saw the social networks, the collective thinking that's beginning to happen through these systems. It's sometimes called we think, that we're actually beginning to work together. And my feeling is that, firstly, we're going to need that sort of collective thinking to tackle the, the huge problems we've got. But also I see there's a possibility of us really feeding back into each other's spiritual journey, spiritual awakening, helping each other on that journey. And I feel the internet is going to play a role there in ways which we probably don't see now, just as years ago, 15 years ago when the web started, we couldn't see where it was going. I suspect we'll look back in 10 years' time and be amazed at where we've got to in terms of shifting in human consciousness and what an important role the web played in that, even though we can't really see what that is now. Well, you know, of course we can see the power of the web to help make available wisdom teachings from many different traditions and help connect people. But as we know, it's also being used for porn sites and for criminal activity and for all kinds of things. So it seems it's a rather neutral tool in that it's amplifying at many levels. Yes, I think that's very true. You could say the same of books. I mean, books have been around for a long time and 
they've been used for pornography, they've been used, you know, just for very materialistic concerns, for very superficial entertainment. But also books have had an incredible value in the past in terms of spreading wisdom, helping people in their inner growth. So I don't think the fact they can be used for other purposes negates the higher purpose they can also be used for. But I mean, couldn't somebody make the case here like, oh, great, now we're amplifying everything that's damaging to others as well as amplifying the wisdom in the world. What makes us think this is going to lead to a more awake world? This tool is being used by all kinds of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I think there's an inherent attraction in awakening which feeds upon itself. I mean, take pornography. You know, there's always been people interested in porn. It might be you know, an element of everybody, or many people have that sort of fascination. But just making it more available, I don't think, feeds that basic impulse that's already there. It just satisfies it. Whereas I think with spiritual awakening, there's something more that we are all looking for. And it's realizing that we're not finding it in the society that's being presented to us. And so we're, we're looking for other ways to lead our lives, other sources of contentment. And because that's that deep seeking there, I think as more and more people tap into that and make that available to each other, I think that begins to start spreading out through society because it's beginning to help people satisfy this deeper seeking. Hmm. I hope you're right. I think so. I I really feel this porn and all that stuff, the over-concern with just shopping and all that, that will happen. And that will keep on happening. That's not going to go away. But I think the other side will rise out of that, will rise through that. When we're talking about this proliferation of spiritual awakening, I'd like to get more clear, what do you really mean by that term? What do you think that means? Spiritual awakening? Yeah. For me, it means a freeing of the mind, a liberation, freeing ourselves from a set of attitudes that actually keep us trapped in our lives, that keep us feeling discontent and keep us chasing things, looking to ease that discontent. I feel that the mind in its natural state, before it gets churned up with worry and anxiety and hoping and fantasy and chasing things, the mind in its natural state is at ease. And we disturb that ease through feeling there's something missing, feeling there's something we have to have, worrying about something, grieving over something that happened in the past. We continually disturb that natural state of ease. And spiritual awakening for me is two aspects. is one, understanding that, realizing that. And then the more important part is living that through letting go of releasing the if you like the mental patterns that hold us into that way of functioning so it's about finding the freedom 
to actually be able to be at ease, to be at peace in ourselves. Whatever we're going through, it doesn't mean to say that we don't have emotions or feel angry or that there aren't many, many things in the world we feel focused on that we need to change. It's not about just saying everything's okay, I'm happy with everything. It's more just being able to be at ease with your experience, even if your experience is, this is disgusting, I really must deal with this. But instead of getting screwed up around things and just creating more inner anguish and discontent, we can be in a inner state of balance with how things are. And I must say, you know, when you ask me what's it mean for me, I notice if you'd asked me five years ago, I'd have said something different and asked me five years hence, I'll say something different. What I find fascinating is that it's something that's always shifting and changing as my own experience changes. I may refine it or see, oh, that was very naive what I was thinking 10 years ago. So I think there's a continual process in me of refining that understanding. But that's how I put it at this moment. The term awakening makes it sound like there was a period of time in which someone was not awake and then they became mm-hmm. awake, as in a sort of definitive line. And I'm curious right. if, it, if that's true in, in your experience or if it's more a sort of dawning of a new it's, way of being. Yes. I th- well, I think, I mean, the truth is we are all awake most of the waking day. You could even say we are awake in terms of being conscious during our sleep. One way of looking at it is becoming awake to our own beingness, our own inner wakefulness. You could say it's like becoming awake to our own consciousness, our own beingness. So it's not we were asleep before and now we're awake, but it's like a deeper clarity, a a level of awakening that's happening. Mm -hmm. I know when you have talked about 2012, the symbolic time of 2012, you've talked about three different important factors to consider, the deepening crisis that we're in, global crisis, and I think most people can relate to that. And we've talked some about this global movement towards spiritual awakening. And then the third factor is this acceleration of technology that you often talk about. And I'm curious, where do you see our technological capacities going in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? I think it's almost impossible to look out more than about 10, 15 years today. Just as in the past, we've proved ourselves incapable of looking to the future. I mean, just a couple of examples. Nobody, you know, back in the 50s, when computers were coming on stream, all the science fiction stories were talking about megalithic computers, huge computers. Nobody, nobody saw the militarization of computing and where that would lead. We just have a blind spot on things. And there's many examples where we just completely missed what was going to happen. And because things are moving faster and faster and faster, when we think now, when we look ahead now at where things are going, all we can do is extend our current understanding of technology, but we don't know what new inventions, breakthroughs, innovations are going to happen. But I think one trend is we know computing, or we suspect, there's every reason to believe that the power and speed of computing is going to get faster and faster and faster and faster. And 
all the estimates are that round about the year 2025, sometime in the middle of that decade, we will have computers, the average laptop will be as smart as a human brain. And it's very hard to predict what's going to happen then. I mean, Ray Kurzweil calls that the singularity, the point at which the old patterns of history break down. And it may be, you know, we start having some symbiotic relationship with computers. Some people think computers will take over. I don't know. I think we could use that incredible computing power for our own benefit as well. But now, I mean, let's just talk about this a little bit, a, a computer that's as smart as a human person. Of course, I've met people that I, I can imagine that computers would be quite smarter. But mm -hmm. there's no human soul, creativity, divine inspiration. I mean, none of that's going to come through a computer. Right. Well, here, people fall into two camps here. Most of the sort of technological people seem to have this idea that computers will then become conscious. What, what, hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that mean? Help right. Me, help me there. I think people who say that are usually basing that on the idea that human consciousness somehow comes out of the complexity of the human brain, that somehow the dead, unconscious matter of the human brain produces this thing which we have called, you know, consciousness experience, and they assume that's going to happen to computers. I don't think it's like that. I think we will have smart computers, but they will not have awareness. I don't see them having feelings. They might be able to imitate feelings, but I don't imagine they would actually have emotions like we have them. So I don't think they're, going to, they're not going to be conscious. They're just going to be very, very good at processing things, solving problems, working things out. I mean, the one area where we're so much better at computers at the moment is pattern recognition, that we can look at a room and just we can pick out a cup sitting on a shelf. A computer finds that almost impossible at the moment, except under certain perfect conditions. So there's areas where computers are far behind, and pattern recognition is one of them. How will this capacity, this technological capacity for computers to process information this well, how will this change the way we function? Do you imagine? Do I imagine? Yes, I... I really... You're a futurist, Peter. You're yes. allowed to ask these kinds, I'm allowed <laughs> to ask you these kinds of questions. I, think, I don't think any of us have an idea of where the future is. Um, I really don't know. I, I hesitate to even offer any prediction because I know whatever I say is probably going to be so wide off the mark when we get there. And all my thinking is so much in terms of now, here we are in the, you know, 2008 in this reality... I think things are going to be so different 15 years on. Many people describe 2012 as a time of potential breakdown or breakthrough or both. And I'm curious how you weigh in on this breakdown side. I mean, we've talked about the era of breakdown that we're in, but we've been talking a lot in this discussion about potential breakthroughs. And then what do you think individuals can do in their own lives to tip the balance? I think the fact we're heading towards breakdown is so clear to most people, although many people may be in denial about it. I think just a lot of people are in denial about the coming economic meltdown that we're now experiencing, although it was obvious something like this was going to happen sooner or later. So I think clearly 
was a period of major breakdown. Systems are under such strain, particularly environmental systems and some social systems. There's going to be a falling apart of the old. I think that's inevitable. The transformation, I think, comes from the realization that we are, in a way, responsible. It's interesting, most of the crises in the past, we've been able to sort of separate ourselves from it, that it wasn't our fault, it just happened to us. What's interesting about what happened with the economic meltdown was people started seeing, ah, this was because of human greed. And in a way, we're all guilty of that. I mean, there's very few of us, I think, who can stand up and say, I don't have moments of greed myself or moments of wanting to be in control of things. I don't get power hungry myself. I think all that's, if you like, wrong with humanity when we look at the world out there, we have the seeds for that in ourselves. So the real work of transformation is us beginning to look at ourselves and say, okay, where am I greedy? Where am I self-centered? Where do I perhaps abuse other people in some way or another? Where do I lack compassion? And I am the only person I really have responsibility for in that. So the more that I can begin to shift my own inner being, the more that I can release myself from some of those patterns, I think the better member of society I'm going to be. And I trust that there are millions and millions of people in their own way working on the same challenges. And that's what gives me hope. Many people, I think, respond to periods of breakdown, things like the economic crisis you're referring to, with a feeling of fear and contraction. What do you have to say to that and to those people and to those experiences? I think that's a very normal reaction. And that's really a reflection of the old mode of thinking that most of us are caught in. And I think most fear comes from the fact that we start looking into the future and start thinking things are not going to be the way I think they should be for me to feel okay. I feel I'm out of control of my world and I'm not going to like the way things are. That's the basis of why we get into a fear response. I mean, if, for example, we suddenly saw and this is just hypothetical, that it was leading to a situation where we were going to feel better, we wouldn't feel the fear. But that's the general pattern with fear. And it, it's not only when there's a major breakdown, you know, the same can happen, stuck in a traffic jam, we start fearing, I'm going to be late home, what's going to happen? We move into fear. As soon as we start projecting into a future and feeling the future isn't going to be the way I think it should be for me to feel okay, we trigger fear. I think part of the the journey of awakening, part of the process of awakening, is recognizing the belief system under that. There's this belief system that says, I need to have things to be a certain way in order to feel okay. And there's a growing recognition that comes to people that I can actually feel okay, genuinely feel okay, in a multiplicity of situations. I don't have to have things be a certain way. Feeling okay is more about an inner attitude 
rather than have it depend upon circumstances. And as we begin to develop that more in ourselves, then we begin to find that we're less triggered by circumstances. We're less likely to fall into fear when we meet a situation where things are going to be different in the future. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we escape fear altogether, not at all, but it means we're beginning to free ourselves from that pattern so that we're less likely to be triggered by it, so that if we find ourselves in a traffic jam, for example, or standing in line at a store, we don't have to fall into the anxiety mode. You know, we can actually sit back and say, hey, how can I look at this differently? Maybe there's an opportunity here. Maybe I could just experience what it's like just to pause for 30 seconds. So that's the sort of the seed of the shift in consciousness. And I think the more we practice that, the more we can bring that into a greater variety of situations and gradually like, be able to take it into perhaps what would have been quite hard situations before. Now, Peter, I know that you teach meditation with the idea that it can be a tool that can help us in this cultivation of what you're calling this shift. Mm -hmm. So what's the connection between learning to meditate and making the kinds of shifts you're talking about? Yes, when I'm teaching meditation, I'm really teaching people about letting go. It's about letting go of the grip our mind has on the way things should be. And it's almost like relaxing. If we can let the mind relax, and it's really about letting the mind relax. I don't think you can do relaxation. You can't, we can't make a muscle relax, but we can actually, by bringing awareness to a tense muscle, feeling what it's like, very often then the relaxation can happen. We can allow it to release. And I see it's the same with the mind. Our attention gets focused. It gets hooked up on things, particularly the way we think things should be or should not be. And meditation for me is the practice of recognizing how it feels to just let the attention relax. And when you do that, it doesn't mean to say the mind has to become still. People think of meditation, and there are many meditations aimed at making the mind still or helping the mind become still. The meditation I teach is more how to allow ourselves to be at ease with what is, to let ourselves relax inside. And when you do that, you're no longer fueling those sort of repetitious thoughts that keep the mind active. And so gradually, as a result, the mind will begin to settle down and become quiet. Now, the second part to your question. And the relationship between learning meditation and being able to make the kinds of shifts yeah. that you think are necessary in this yeah. 2012 transformative time? I think if we can learn how to be at ease in ourselves in a variety of situations, in situations which previously we would have found very distressing or uncomfortable, then two things happen. One, I think we're more stable. In the world that's coming, 2012, the changes that are coming, not just 2012, but I think 
in the coming years. If every time there's a major upset, the stock market crashes or weather systems change or whatever it is, our house prices go down again, whatever it is, if we have that inner stability of knowing that inner sense of okayness, then we're not going to be so kicked around by the world. We're not going to be like a leaf blown around by the wind, whichever which way the wind blows. If we have that stability. It's like a tree in a storm. If it's got strong roots, it's not going to blow over. But the other thing a tree needs is flexibility. And I think that's what having that inner sense of okayness also gives us the flexibility. We're not so attached to how we think things should be or what the solution is. We can let go of the past. And I think that's going to be really important because in the challenges that are coming, we need to be much more creative, not just do things the way we always have done. We need to be free inside to let go of our assumptions that this is the way we do things or this is the way we did things in the past. So this is how we've got to do them now. We've got to be freer and creative. And I think the people who will deal best with the changes that are going to come are those who are the most flexible, creative, can look at the situation with fresh eyes and not hold on to the past. Just one final question, Peter. You've talked a lot about how our sense of time is accelerating. You know, in the last hundreds of years, this sense that things are happening faster and faster and faster. And at some point, time will just be happening so fast that what? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of mm -hmm. mind-bending in a way. Is there any end to this sense of acceleration? I think there's two possible scenarios here. One is the change gets so fast that we cannot take it. We break down. We become so stressed by it. We crack up. Okay, what, is that, what does that mean exactly? I mean, I have some ideas about that, but what do you yeah. mean by crack up? Well... I mean, people, we see this with individuals sometimes when the stress gets too much, we sort of, we burn out and collapse and go into maybe some sort of breakdown in our life, whether our health cracks up and we just have to step back or whether we can't take it anymore and we move into depression or some withdrawal. We pull back from life as an individual, but also it could mean it just increases the chances of breakdown on social level, environmental level. As things move faster, if we keep on, as we are at the moment, burning more and more fossil fuels, putting out more and more pollution faster and faster, the environment's going to start cracking up. I mean, the environment is under stress at the moment. And if we go through some sort of breakdown like that, it'll push evolution back, whether it pushes us back if we had a major setback, we could go back to the Middle Ages or further. But once we recover, then I think inevitably we are on that same accelerating path again. And it may be each time we reach this point of real extreme change that there's a breakdown, there's a crack up. But the other alternative is that maybe we can move into that and that I think what's going to happen there is it's not going to be technology that's changing. Every arena of change has its limits. And it's like population has been exploding. That's now leveling off. It's found its limit, thankfully. 
you could say various industrial technologies like um, the steam engine that went through its exponential growth and then that tailored off as other forms of transport came along I think you see the same thing with technology generally that will reach its own limits of how fast that can change what I see the potential is here is for inner change I think inner change changes in ourselves could happen much much faster and that wouldn't be a change which would stress us out it would actually be the opposite it would be a change that would free us up from the things that cause us so much stress so I see that potential for very fast change to shift from where we see it now which is in technology to move into the inner world of, of human consciousness and if that were to happen then that's why I see that there could be that widespread awakening of consciousness.